go to their classes. And today, kids, this is your class. And kids, together, we are going to keep our Bibles open in the book of Revelation, no less. And this is going to be really fun to do this together. So kids, I just want to recognize, I know that you're here, and I'm so glad that you're here with us, listening uh, as we talk about and as we celebrate and singing along with us uh, as we sing praises to the Lamb who was slain and is now standing. And a special greeting, not only to the kids who are here with us, uh, but a special greeting to all of you who are here today, even if you don't normally uh, come to worship at Redeemer. And so maybe uh, maybe you're not normally here because you're visiting family today. Maybe you're not normally here just because it's, uh, it's Easter and it's a good Sunday uh, to be uh, at church. And whether, you know, whichever kind of reason it is for you, I just want to extend a warm welcome to you from my heart and just say, I'm so glad uh, that you've come to join us this morning. Um, and I hope that, uh, that as we look together at what the Bible tells us about Jesus, I pray that this will be more than just kind of a holiday thing that we're doing together. I pray that God himself will meet you in your heart right where you are today with exactly what you need. And so a word of welcome to all of you who are here as guests. Well, what if we start with a little bit of the Chronicles of Narnia? Is that okay? Can we start there before we get to Jesus? I get a loud yes from at least one kid. He happens to be in my family, but I didn't ask him to say that in advance. Um, But some of you have heard of the Chronicles of Narnia, a series of stories written by C.S. Lewis. Um, And in this series of stories, there are four main characters, two brothers and two sisters, the Pevensies, and they find their way into another world, uh, a world called Narnia. And when they first find their way into this world called Narnia, the world called Narnia that they discover is both beautiful and broken. This world that they find themselves in is both both charming and also bewitched. It's full of light and it's full of darkness. They find this world which is beautiful and yet broken. It's in this state in which the people that they meet who are these charming people are living in a kind of slavery. And the whole world is trapped in this season which C.S. Lewis, the author, describes as always winter but never Christmas. The people themselves are living in slavery. The whole world finds itself trapped always winter but never Christmas. A world that's both beautiful and broken. And in this world of both beauty and brokenness, these four children who have entered the world of Narnia begin to catch this sense that maybe they're there for a great reason. Maybe they're there for a great purpose. Maybe they have been brought to Narnia in order to reign there in order to rule, in order to spread light and warmth and redemption as far as the curse is found in this world. 
But very quickly, these four children who have this inkling, this sense that maybe they've found themselves in this world of beauty and brokenness in order to spread redemption, they begin to realize they can't spread that redemption themselves. In fact, left to themselves, they might only deepen the darkness. These four siblings begin to realize that they need a hero greater than themselves. And happily, they meet such a hero, the great lion Aslan. And as he comes, the winter begins to thaw. The snow begins to melt. It appears that light is dawning and redemption is beginning to be unleashed. And then, and then the great tragedy of the first novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan dies. He's slaughtered by the white witch. He's killed. And the two sisters have watched the events unfold step by step. They've watched the horrific events as the lion's mane is cut off. He's lowered in shame. He's bound up. He's tied. And there at the great stone table, I'm sorry if this is a spoiler alert, if you need to close your ears and you've never read the book or watched the movie, he dies. Their hero has died at the great stone table in the middle of the night. And these two girls, Susan and Lucy, remain at the site of the death. They draw near to the corpse of the lion and they find him unmistakably dead. They cry and they cry and they cry. Because Lucy and Susan understand that if there is no Aslan, there is no hope for the whole world. In fact, the narrator of the story explains their sadness in the middle of the night like this. He says, I hope that no one who reads this book has ever been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you have been up all night and cried until you have no tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing is ever going to happen again. At any rate, that was how it felt to these two. Hours and hours seemed to go by in this dead calm. and They hardly noticed that they were getting colder and colder. But then, spoiler alert number two if you need to plug your ears. But then the light of a new day begins to dawn at the great stone table. And as the light begins to dawn, as the girls are walking away from where Aslan's body lays, they hear a giant thunderous sound, a cracking of stone. And they turn around and they see in the first light of dawn that the table where the corpse of Aslan had laid, 
The table is broken in two. And then they notice something even more astonishing. Aslan's body is no longer there. One of the girls confronted with the facts of this new dawn. Aslan was dead, unmistakably. And now confronted with the facts that great, that great stone table has been broken in two and Aslan's body is no longer lying there dead. Confronted with these facts, one of the girls exclaims in wonder, what does it mean? And in a similar way, we gather together on this Easter Sunday confronted with a set of facts. A set of facts in history that we heard read aloud from the reliable historical testimonies of Scripture just a few minutes ago. We've been confronted with these facts. Jesus Christ died. And unmistakably so. But we're confronted also with this fact. The stone has been rolled away. And the tomb is now empty. And confronted with these facts on this Easter morning, like Susan in C.S. Lewis's novel, except this is real life and real history. Confronted with these facts, we also need to ask this question, what does it all mean? Confronted with the facts of the empty tomb, we need to ask ourselves this Easter Sunday, what does it mean? And we've chosen a passage of Scripture this Easter Sunday that reveals to us what it means. It reveals to us at least some of the good news. A great portion of the good news of what it means. That the Lamb who was once slain is now alive forevermore. Standing in victory over the dead. This passage that we're looking at today is from the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has two effects on people. For some people, it will freak you out. And for other people, it will geek you out. (laughs) And so whether you're looking at the book of Revelation with just a little bit of knowledge of the Bible, and you're feeling a little bit freaked out by the imagery here in this ancient apocalyptic literature or whether you're looking at the book of Revelation and you're already geeking out about levels of detail that I'm not going to be able to get into in a few minutes with kids in the room, okay? So whether you're freaking out or geeking out, here's what I want to assure you of right now. The book of Revelation has been given to reveal. And it's been given to us to reveal specifically Jesus Christ to us. 
and has been given to reveal Jesus Christ to us, not just so that we have weird information that other people lack, but with pastoral purpose, we might say. That's why the book of Revelation, after describing a little bit about Jesus, goes into seven letters written to churches like our church. The book of Revelation is written to reveal Jesus, and it's written to reveal Jesus in a way that will meet people like us who gather at churches on the Lord's Day. And so whether you geek out or freak out about the book of Revelation, I want to invite you to look along with me at what this, what this passage that Nat read a few minutes ago, what it reveals about Jesus. And then I want to invite you to consider along with me some of what that means for a group of people like us together today. We'll take uh, Revelation chapter 5 in maybe four parts as we consider the answer to this question, what does it mean? What does it mean that the lamb who was once slain is now standing? Here's the first thing that we need to see from Revelation chapter 5. The first thing that we need to see here in this passage is that the lamb, that because the lamb is now standing, we need to understand, in order to understand this, we need to understand that he is our one and only hope. Our one and only hope. Look with me, if you would, at Revelation chapter 5 and the first few verses uh, here in this passage. Look with me again, if you would. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. Now let's just pause there for a second and get our bearings. This is a vision. It's a vision that was given to the Apostle Paul, one of the disciples, or excuse me, to the Apostle John, one of the disciples of Jesus. And John is given this vision, this window into heaven, if you will. And as he gets this window into heaven, he's drawn into a dramatic story. A dramatic story of redemption that has to do with, in verse 1, this scroll. And what is this scroll? Again, I don't have time to get into some of the nuanced details here, but maybe we can put it simply like this. This scroll represents God's good plans for justice and for redemption and all of good, God's good plans for the world. In this scroll are all of God's plans to bring about his good purposes. We began our service, our Easter service, with a song in question. Do you feel that the world is broken? And we sang back, we do. Maybe you just sang it because those were the words on the screen. But I think when we hear that question, do you feel that the world is broken? I think we instinctively get the right answer. Yes, we do feel that. And then that song asked us another question. Do you feel the, as though the darkness and the shadows are deepening? And we say we do. It's not just because those words were on the screen. It's because in our experience in this life, as we look around, we are confronted with injustices which don't seem to be fully resolved. And we're confronted with the horrible reality of death. 
and we're confronted with the sins of other people. And over time, if we're honest, we become acquainted with sins in our own hearts and in our own lives. And so we look at the world around us and we say, do you feel that the whole world is broken? And we say, we do. This world which has so much beauty in it and seems to have so much potential also seems to be so broken. This world with so many rays of light which seem to come from God also seems to have these dark shadows all around it. And we feel it deep in our hearts, don't we? Here's what I'm getting at. This scroll, this scroll that is in the hand of the one who is seated on the throne, this scroll is God's plans to deal with those injustices. This scroll contains God's plans to deal with our sins. This scroll contains God's plans to bring about redemption from sin for sinners from around the world. But this scroll which contains in it all of God's good plans to conquer Satan and evil, to preserve the church, to make all things new, and to bring redemption as far as the curse is found. This scroll which contains all of God's good plans, here's the thing, it can't be opened by anybody they find in John's vision. This scroll is sealed, and in the ancient world, when a scroll was sealed for a certain purpose, for example, if you wrote your your will and testimony for after you die, and you seal it, and you say, only my sons are allowed, or only my sons and daughters are allowed to break this seal and open this scroll, it means only those people are allowed to enact the plans that are written in that legally binding document. And in a similar way, the one who sits on the throne has a scroll, he has plans to deal with justice. He has plans to do something about our sins. He has plans to spread redemption as far as the curse is found. But who is able to unlock those plans? And in John's vision, he sees this massive search project. A massive search project as as the mighty angel proclaims, who's worthy to open it? And then look at verse 3 for a second. Nobody in heaven is found able to unlock that. So think about that for a second. There is no angel in heaven who is able to enact God's good plans for redemption. No angel is found. No archangel. Not the most powerful celestial being. Not one of those creatures that dwells near to the very presence of God. Not one of them, even though they live in sinless purity in the presence of God. Not one of them is able to unlock God's plans. And then the search goes further in verse 3. It's not only a search through heaven, it's a search through earth to unlock all of God's good plans. And there is nobody found worthy. No prophet from Israel's history. No great leader like Moses is able to unlock God's plans for redemption. No great prophet like Isaiah is able to unlock God's plans for redemption. No great leader like Nehemiah is able to do it. No religious leader from other religious traditions 
neither Muhammad nor Gandhi nor any other spiritual leader from any religion in any part of the world is able to unlock God's good plans for redemption according to Revelation chapter 5. No powerful leader is able to unlock God's good plans for history. No emperor in Rome is able to bring about the fulfillment of God's kingdom. No chairman in China, no dictator in Russia, no president in the United States, no leading candidates in the Democratic or Republican parties or third parties or fourth parties or fifth parties. No human leader is found able to unlock God's good plans. The search goes far and wide and deep and nobody is found worthy. And what does John do? Look with me for a second at verse 4. John describes his experience like this. I began to weep loudly because nobody was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Why is John weeping? You know why John is weeping loudly when nobody could unlock the scroll of God's good plans to deal with injustice and to do something about sin and to do something about the darkness that spreads throughout this world? You know why he's weeping? He's weeping because he gets it. He gets that sin and death and darkness are a big deal. And he gets that something needs to be done about sin and death and darkness. And John also gets this fact. That apart from Jesus Christ... There is no ultimate hope for dealing with sin and death and darkness. No matter how spiritual we may be, no matter how powerful our political connections are, no matter how pure our system of governance, apart from Jesus Christ, there is no true and ultimate hope for dealing with sin and death and darkness. And that's why when John hears this search go on and nobody is found, he starts weeping. Why? Because he gets it. This is a big deal. You know, we live in kind of a a you-do-you moment in time, right? And so if, if you want to become a Christian and you get baptized, your neighbors will come and they'll clap and cheer and your neighbors will say, you know what, I'm so glad that this Jesus thing is working for you. And I love it when neighbors come and they clap and cheer and they say, I'm so glad that this Jesus thing is working for you. But here's the thing, according to the New Testament... The Jesus thing is not just a thing that works for a few specific people if it happens to work for you. According to the New Testament, this Jesus thing is our one and only true hope. It's not just a thing that might work for some people. Jesus Christ is our one and only hope. 
And as we let this fact sink in, we might join John in weeping a little bit over the brokenness of this world that we live in. But as we let this sink in that Jesus is our one and only hope, it doesn't just leave us weeping in sorrow. It brings us to a place where we can begin weeping with joy. Because while there is one and only one true hope for redemption, here's the good news. We have met Him in Jesus Christ. See, here's a first way that we begin to understand the significance of the empty tomb and the Lamb who was once slain but is now standing. We begin to understand it when we realize that He is our one and only hope. Not just one way among many to find fulfillment in life but our one and only true hope. But that brings us to a second thing that we need to see about the Lamb who was once slain and is now standing. It's that He has conquered sin and death. What nobody else was able to accomplish, He has accomplished. And we get that picture beginning in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So here we have a picture in, again, this is part of a heavenly vision made up of imagery. Just like the Chronicles of Narnia are made up of imagery. And we kind of instinctively understand in the Chronicles of Narnia that a lion image represents something, what would we say? Something majestic, something powerful, something regal. In the ancient world, when John wrote this book of Revelation, there were images that had understood meanings to them as well. It's kind of like if your kid draws a picture for you, right? And your kid brings over a picture and, and your kid is, is like, look what I made. And you're like, it's so beautiful. And you're looking at your three-year-old's drawing. And then your three-year-old says, you know what it is? And you say, what is it? Right? And they say, it's our family. He's like, of course, that's our family. Right? Of course. And then, and then, and then your three year old, and, and you notice in the picture that somebody in the family has pink hair. And at least in my family, you're like, I'm, I'm, you know, who has pink? And so you ask your three year old, why does somebody have pink hair? And she's like, that's grandma. You're like, why does grandma have pink hair? She said, because pink is my favorite color. And grandma is my favorite person. So that's why, and you say, of course, that's why grandma has pink hair. Because grandma is your favorite person and pink is your favorite color. And it all starts to make sense, right? And in the same way, God has given us a book that has, in its apocalyptic literature... It has these images in it, which at first we might just look at it and we might say, that's interesting, but what is it? And, 
And the Lord says, it's a lion. We say, oh, that's right. Why is there a lion in Revelation 5? Well, because throughout the Old Testament apocalyptic, in the Old Testament apocalyptic literature, lions represent reigning creatures that cannot be defeated. Undefeatable creatures. And so as John in his vision, gets this picture of a lion, we're meant to understand Jesus is undefeatable. He's a conquering lion. But then the imagery shifts quickly. It's as if your three-year-old kind of says, here's one picture, now here's the next. And look with me in verse 6. John kind of hears, there's a lion over there, an undefeatable, conquering creature. John looks, and what does he see in verse 6? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw, what? A lamb. And we say, what is it? A lamb. Why is there suddenly a lamb in this picture? Well, because throughout the Old Testament, as Josh Anderson drew our attention to last week, when he was preaching about the, the, uh, the saying of John the Baptist, who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John was unpa- uh, Josh was explaining to us some of this imagery of the Lamb of God slain for our sins. Why is there a lamb here in Revelation chapter 5? Because Jesus is not only undefeatable and not only a conqueror, but He is one who has triumphed. Not by, in the first place, coming in His military might to destroy everybody else, but by one who has come in humility. Presenting himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's portrayed as a lamb because this victory that he won has been won through his sacrificial death on the cross. But then the imagery changes one more time again, right? Look with me again at verse 6. And between the throne I saw four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb. Was it lying there dead? No. A lamb once slain, but now standing as though it had been slain. What does this signify for us? It tells us that Jesus, who won a victory through His sacrificial death on our behalf, now is alive and alive forevermore. And the death that He won, excuse me, the victory that He won over death through His own sacrificial death, He now stands in victory forevermore to spread as far as the curse is found. Listen, this is very good news. A week and a half ago, my father-in-law had a heart episode. Ended up in the hospital for a week. And we're asking some questions that aren't comfortable to ask about somebody we love and care about. 
while he was there at the hospital, actually while I was in the parking lot, I got a message from a dear friend whose dad died that very day. Last Sunday, as some or many of you know, a young fella who grew up in our church and is now in his 20s died in a fatal vehicle accident last Sunday afternoon in North Carolina. Someone that many of us have so many memories with. We come face to face with death. And we realize this stuff is not just a fairy tale. This stuff is serious. And I know that this past year or these past couple years, others of you have lost moms or dads, brothers or sisters, other loved ones. We come face to face with death and we realize this is serious stuff. What can ever be done about this grief that we feel? This grief that feels like nothing will ever happen again, as C.S. Lewis put it. What will we do with the injustices that seem to go unanswered? What will we do with this sin and all of the darkness that casts its shadows? Here's the answer of the New Testament. Jesus, through His sacrificial death, And his triumphant resurrection has conquered sin and death and darkness forevermore. In fact, here's how Jesus introduces himself at the beginning of the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1 verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and I am the living one. And then he goes on to say, I died, and check this out, loose translation. (laughs) I died, and check this out, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Which is not to say that sin will no longer cross our paths. It's not to say that we'll never have to live in the valley of the shadow of death. It's not to say that we won't suffer or face real evil and darkness in this life. It's not to say that we won't have to taste death to some degree even as believers. But it is to say that while we look in the face of darkness and like John, we weep and we say, This sin, this death, this evil, this darkness, it does not belong. And while we weep and we grieve it, and while we remember loved ones we've lost too soon, that we weep over rightly, while we weep and grieve and long for redemption, listen, because Jesus has the keys of death and Hades, we do not need to grieve as those who have no hope. As people who understand that Jesus himself entered our world and suffered and even died, we ourselves will weep and cry over the darkness. But we won't weep and cry as those who have no hope. 
As those who understand the victory of Jesus, the Lamb who was slaughtered as a sacrifice for our sins, but is now standing in conquering victory over sin, death, darkness, and evil. We grieve, but oh, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Here's a Second thing we see about the Lamb once slain and now standing. He has conquered sin and death. He's alive and alive forevermore. A third thing we see is that He has accomplished a worldwide redemption. I'm going to do this very quickly, but I can't skip it. Look with me if you would at verse 9. As the Lamb appears in John's vision, thunderous worship begins to ripple out throughout the heavens. And there's a song that is sung. Thousands upon thousands of rulers are joining together, shouting this victory song in verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood, you have ransomed. That means set free. Like the people of Israel were set free. Free from slavery in Egypt. Jesus has, by His blood, ransomed or set free people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And He has made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. So much in here. But let me boil it down like this. There seems to be two passages of Scripture that are woven together in this heavenly song. The first passage of Scripture is from Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, reflecting back on the Exodus story. When the people of Israel were set Free, And there was a lamb that was slain and its blood was painted over the door of the household so that when the angel of death came by, the angel didn't come inside the house and say, are you worthy to be redeemed by the Lord? Are you worthy to be counted as one of his? The angel of death didn't come by and do a moral examination of each and every person. No, the angel of death came by and said, there's blood over the doorpost. I'm passing death right over this place. On account of the blood of the Lamb. And reflecting on that Exodus event. The judgment of God. The death passing over on account of the blood of the Lamb. There is this passage in Exodus chapter 19. When God gathers His people together. Who have been set free from slavery. And His message to them is. I didn't just set you free. So that you could go back to living However you feel like living. I set you free to be my treasured people. To be my precious people. To be my beloved community. You see, the Lord doesn't set us free simply to go back and do whatever we want. He sets us free so that we can know Him. And so that we can be treasured as His dearly beloved. And in that passage... The people of God are described as a kingdom of priests. A liberated, set free, redeemed, ransomed by the blood of the Lamb. Kingdom of priests 
who now live their lives in the very presence of the one who loves them and cherishes them. And the heavenly chorus joins in the song saying, Jesus, you're worthy. Because while the blood of the Lamb in the Exodus event painted over a doorway made a way for people to escape one night of death, and while that made a way for a peop- the people of God to be brought out into the wilderness to worship the Lord there, Jesus, your blood has done far more, ransoming people forevermore and ransoming people not just from one nation and one tribe, but ransoming people Borrowing language from Daniel chapter 7 verse 14. Ransoming people from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. This diverse but unified community. Unlike any other in the history of our world. This diverse but unified community is created in the blood of the Lamb. Who has made a way... For sinful people like you and me, not on the basis of a moral evaluation of how worthy we are to be his, but on the basis of the blood of the lamb, it has made a way for us to belong to him as his treasured possession. And what is the response to all of this? As we realize that the Lamb is now standing as our one and only hope who has conquered sin and death and evil and darkness, who has accomplished a worldwide redemption. What is the response to it? You heard the response as Nat was reading the passage. The response is a response of unending devotion. You see, Revelation chapter 5 reveals to us about Jesus Christ that He is worthy of our deepest devotion and our loudest praise forevermore without ends. As His accomplishments come into view, the worship and the praise, this thunderous devotion expressed in shouted out songs spreads from ruler to ruler to myriads of myriads saying in verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now let me ask you a question for just a second. Why is that written here in our Bibles? It's not because the angelic crowd in heaven needs a hymn book. They're not wondering, what are we supposed to sing next? They're already singing this stuff. John just gets a glimpse of the songs that flow out of their hearts naturally. So why is this here? It's not here to instruct angels how to worship the Lamb who was slain and to express their devotion to Him. This is here in Revelation chapter 5 to draw and instruct us in how to worship the Lamb who was slain and to express our devotion to Him. You see, as we learn about the Lamb 
who was slain as a sacrifice for our sins, but who is now standing in victory forevermore, having accomplished a worldwide redemption. As we catch a glimpse of who He is and what He's done, this should kind of draw something in our hearts like a gigantic cosmic magnet. Drawing something Upward out of our hearts. Drawing our gaze toward the one who truly is worthy of our deepest devotion and our loudest praises. This is here to draw our hearts love toward him. And let me personalize that a little bit. We've talked a little bit about kind of the worldwide problem. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope. We've talked a little bit about the the world-changing events. He died and He is risen. We've talked about the worldwide redemption. People set free for a new kind of relationship with God, not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of His blood. We've talked about this worldwide redemption that spreads to every tribe and nation and language around the world. But listen, I don't want us to miss this fact that this, ha- that this has to do with you as well. What the Lamb has accomplished through His death and resurrection is not just for many people out there across the centuries and around the globe, is for us. What the Lamb of God has accomplished in opening a way for sinful people to draw near to God is offered to you now, today. And maybe some of us draw near just... Some of us arrive on Easter today just weary in the face of death and darkness and the shadows cast around our world. Listen. Jesus doesn't say to you, your tears don't matter. Jesus doesn't say, why are you crying? What's the big deal? Jesus himself entered the darkness. Jesus himself wept in the face of death. Jesus himself endured suffering on the cross to the point of death. Jesus doesn't say, why are you crying? What's the big deal? But Jesus does say, fear not. For behold, I died and I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. And so if you arrived today, this Easter, weary under the weight of darkness and shadows and death and evil and injustice, let me direct your attention to the Lamb who was slain and is now standing. And let me invite you in hope of the redemption that He will one day finally accomplish when He wipes away every tear from His people's eyes and He makes all things new. Let me invite you in light of His secured victory to take heart, to, to, to take hold of Jesus today in hope and to continue following Him with your deepest devotion.
And yes, even in a world of darkness, with your loudest praises. Why? Because He is worthy. If you arrived here today feeling weighed down or distant from God because of your history, because of your background, because of your baggage, because of your sin, because of the things that you even feel have made a separation, that bitterness, that resentment, those things that you feel have made a separation between you and your God. Let me tell you, Jesus doesn't look at your sin, your bitterness, your resentment and say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. No, Jesus says, I gave my life as an atoning sacrifice for those sins. And he invites you now to draw near to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy. That you may know him. And so if you came this Easter Sunday mainly aware of your distance with God, I would like to invite you now as well to draw near to God. And to join this journey of expressing your life's deepest devotion and loyalty and allegiance to Him. And yes, to join us in singing the praises of the Lamb who was once slain and is now standing forevermore. Why? Because He is worthy. To sum up what we see here in Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Centuries later, heaven has not grown tired shouting out the praises of the Lamb who was slain to conquer sin and death and evil and darkness. Centuries later, heaven has not grown weary of singing His praises. How about you? What's your response?